You're listening to the That's My Financial Guy podcast, where we talk about life, love, the funny, and of course, money. What could go wrong? Welcome to the That's My Financial Guy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Haney with The Haney Company, and I'm thrilled to have an old friend here. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Nick Martin himself. Brian, it's great to be here and fun to see you after, after many years, man. I know. I know. And, and we go way back and we probably won't cover any of that. So um, that's good. We'll save that for another time. But uh, let's, let's dive right in. It's always fun to get to know people on a personal level first. So I want to I wanna kind of, you know, trick you with some really high level, hard to answer questions. All right. What food will you not eat under any circumstance? So, Brian, I have a really hard time with anything that's too spicy, which is very complicated because my fiance, she is a Thai chef. Uh, She makes amazing food, Thai food, and that is painful for me. I sometimes will have watering eyes even when she's cooking. Uh, and, uh, and so anything that's got a spice level above one chili, I, I would say can, can be a challenge for me. Interesting. So, but sounds like, so I'm, I'm the opposite end of that spectrum. So I can appreciate to a certain extent where you're coming from because people that are unlike me where, you know, if, if one chili, I'm like, let's take it back, add 10 chilies to it. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that's going to make your cooking life and your uh, relational life pretty fun. No doubt. That's good. Um, if you could be a superhero and have one superpower, what superpower mm. would you have? I, well, back to remembering to our high school days, I was a fast runner. And you I were. love the idea of being able to be some kind of flash, variety of flash, the superhero going super fast. That is exciting to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it looks amazing to be able to like run on water. That. That would that would seemingly be awesome. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure you're still pretty fast, right? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> or at least we'd like to think we are. If you could have dinner with anyone famous, living or dead, who would you want to have a meal with? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, probably my great great grandfather. He was a okay. fascinating self-made entrepreneur, businessman. Obviously, never met him but uh, was an orphan, came to this country, built up a, uh, a real estate, an oil and, and financial empire. I was also a lawyer. And uh, I always, I would, I would love to know how he did it during the time uh, that he was alive and, and, and what he did uh, to make, make it happen. Where did he come from? Came from Ireland. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my home. All Irish. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... Jeez, you know, that's, I think you're the first to actually have a personal connection mm. in answering that question. That's, mm. that's super awesome. That's yeah. great. Well, obviously, besides this podcast, uh, what other podcasts would you want to recommend to somebody who's maybe looking for one or one that you really enjoy? Great question. So in the last couple weeks, I've done a few wonderful sessions. Uh, my colleague, who's one of the top civil rights lawyers at the Department of Homeland Security, has a podcast called Unfair Nation, which is fascinating. Uh, I did a session with him. I did a session with a guy called Chris uh, Prairie on the on the future of learning. I think his his uh, podcast is uh, is Future of Learning. And he used to run all the e-learning for Microsoft. He was oh, kind wow. of at the center of the, the learning conversation for Microsoft. So we did one on, on the future of learning for the developing world, which is a really interesting topic. 
And then the last one, my buddy Garrett Hall from Swarthmore College has a cool kind of automatic resume scoring site called ResScore. And we had a really interesting talk on on graduate school, undergraduate, undergraduate experience, and sort of where college is going. Uh, so those are three that I, I, I love and I've had a chance to, to actually weigh in on. Awesome. No, I mean, those sound fascinating. And, and yeah. I know we're going to talk a lot about kind of learning. So I'd, um, I'm glad you're kind of get, getting a good framework. So tell, uh, tell the listener your story. I know a little bit yeah. of it, but yeah. uh, let's, let's go from a high level. Yeah, sure. So, Brian, we went to high school together. We did. We went to Landon School for Boys. Yep. And I left Landon totally inspired to become an English major at Swarthmore <laughs> College, which I did. I majored in modern poetry and then worried that was just far too practical a degree. Yeah, I Got know. Got a second degree in education for peace and human rights at an unaccredited school in Costa Rica in the middle of a rainforest. And I loved both those experiences. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but I came back to D.C. Uh, maybe about 12, 13 years ago now without a clear plan or a job and decided to teach myself as many tech skills as I could. And so mm. that meant building websites on nights and weekends. That meant trying to organize with fellow nerds uh, in, the, uh, in the city, uh, many of whom were actually unable to find jobs as well because that was around the time of the financial crisis. And so yeah. happy to go deeper there. But we were able to sort of start this company, Tech Change, on the, on the hope that there were people around the world who were eager to learn new skills in fields like humanitarian work, international development, uh, uh, public policy, but who didn't have the money or the geographic means to actually get to a physical classroom. So yeah. that's where the power of online learning came in for us. We built both a software and a model to be able to deliver courses on all kinds of topics to folks who didn't otherwise have traditional access. That's awesome. Yeah, no, and um, I mean, it, I, I can appreciate at least the uh, getting a degree in something that, you know, now you've, you've switched gears on as a, as a journalism major myself. So, uh, you know, my aspirations for being the next Tony Kornheiser were, were promptly squashed <laughs> as I immediately started to apply for jobs back in, geez, 2002. Which, uh, I mean, in terms of timing, you just, you talked about such an interesting point in history, which I imagine, you know, now thoughtfully, you know, years later, you look back on it, you probably didn't realize all of, all of the convergence happening. I know for me, you know, it, it was this, geez, I mean, 2002, it was kind of the beginning of online news medium. Mm -hmm. And so I remember applying for jobs where, now, as I think back on it, you know, what they were asking me to do is probably now three different jobs. And yet, you know, that was, it was this one gargantuan job description for like, say some association that's now taken their journal online. And I mean, it was just this crazy experience that I was totally unprepared for and, and obviously didn't, didn't stick for me, which I'm okay about. But, uh, I mean, it sounds like you had similar types of you know, personal experiences yourself in terms of, you know, walking into something and really your passions maybe not aligning with what was available. So, you know, you mentioned learning and, and kind of the experience that you had in terms of finding ways to deliver learning through technology to a lot of different parties. What are some of the convergence points that really galvanized that for you at the beginning? Well, uh, I, I think we knew that 
there was a market for people that needed new skills. We knew that was a global market and yeah. we knew that grad schools in particular were becoming more and more cost prohibitive for people. And I think that trend has certainly continued well beyond where I thought it ever would. If yeah. for instance, I teach at Georgetown, I teach at Columbia. If you want to take a two year master's in, um, at Columbia at, at their school of international public affairs, it will cost you roughly about $80,000 per year Crazy. Uh, and that's just tuition. Sure. Then you've got to figure out how to live in New York and actually survive. And so you're looking at easily around 200 to 250K in costs. And again, it's, it's not an MBA. It's not a law degree. It's a master's in public policy, right? And so to me, that is just a huge opportunity for non-traditional providers of online learning to, to undercut and, and provide value in that market. Mm -hmm. Now, there are many things we're up against, right? I, I underestimated uh, 10, 12 years ago the power of the brand in actually allowing these universities to continue to, to, to charge that amount. But, um, but I think we've found a really nice market where people just care about this idea of lifelong learning. Yeah. They're not willing to say, all right, I graduated from college, I graduate from graduate school, now I'm done. No, they're willing to see a professional journey as a journey and actually uh, invest in themselves and go back to various forms of learning opportunities throughout their careers. And those that do that, I think, really are setting themselves up for, for great success in the long run. So as you've seen, you know, since this is all built through technology, what excites you the most technologically speaking as it yeah. relates to learning? Oh, it's a big question, Brian. <laughs> uh, well, I should say that like, if you look at the online learning journey, right, we've had correspondence courses in this uh, country dating back all the way to the 1700s where people sure. would write letters to each other. So the idea of learning at a distance isn't new. Um, but if you look at... In the 1930s, we had people learning over radio. Uh, in the 1950s, there were all kinds of educational programming delivered over TV. It's really in the last 30 years that we've said the computer and this idea of online learning is a thing, and mm -hmm. and it's a two-way channel, right? It's not a it's not a passive. It doesn't necessarily have to be a passive consumption model. So uh, to me, the problem is we've, we've really only started to scratch the surface on what it can do. So sure. the default online learning model is watch this video, take this quiz, and it's a lot of talking heads, and it's, it's, or it's a compliance course that we take when we start uh, at an organization yeah. on, you know, here's how you submit your invoices, or here's, here's what sexual harassment is, and it's usually painful. Whatever it is, we yeah. don't have great feelings about it. So a lot of what we do at Tech Change is try and flip that narrative on its head. How do we make the most beautiful, the most engaging, the most thoughtful, uh, really two-way, community-led courses that uh, people want to take? Well, and so that's kind of that collaborative learning those are two words that I know have converged together quite nicely. And I think that's what you're describing, right? Where mm -hmm. it's not somebody that's just talking at you and you're supposed to consume that however you want to. It's there's a, there's a back and forth mm -hmm. uh, and there's kind of an elevating of all parties that are going to be involved in that process. Mm -hmm. and that's a, and that's gotta be a pretty beautiful experience. I imagine. So people learn differently, right? We have different sure. learning styles and, and methods, et cetera, whether you're auditory, visual, et cetera. Um, what are some of the ways that you've seen, uh, you know, using technology to help people with different learning styles and capacities yeah. kind of still grow and, and, and yeah. effectively? 
It's such a good question because even even just admitting that people learn differently is hard for some of our sure. clients, some of our our community. I think I think appreciating that and appreciating that when you add technology to the mix, it's not just about getting the uh, the learning styles right. It's also about accounting for the medium. Are people going to be taking this course on their phones, on their tablets, on their computers? Mm-hmm. Do they have the bandwidth to actually stream video? Um, what are the language considerations that are uh, at play? Do they, do they all speak English? Uh, sure. Or in some countries where we've worked, uh, where security is a big issue, like are the people that are taking this course, are they protected in ways, if it's about human rights or a sensitive topic, wow, yeah. are they going to be in any kind of danger if they're ac- accessing online content? So these are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. On the learning styles front, for us, it's really about mixing up the different types of, uh, of experiences. So maybe there's a video, maybe there's um, an activity that's designed to connect people in the real mm-hmm. world together. Um, maybe there's a kind of collaborative discussion that's taking place. We're always thinking about how to push the medium as far as it can go, rather than just, again, saying to somebody, all right, watch Brian talk for 30 minutes and then take this quiz on all the things he said. That to us is like... Oh, God, it's, I don't think I would sit through that either. So it's yeah. painful. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of our largest markets in, in, in what we do professionally is working with associations. So membership organizations, and I would absolutely say part of the exciting experiences that we routinely have working with that industry is, is that I think a lot of them are representing, I mean, they represent all industries, right? There's an association for just about everything. So we get to see a lot of how associations are engaging with their industries to do a lot of learning. So how, how much um, have you seen either, you know, in, in that community or the nonprofit world? I mean, I imagine they're probably very engaged with you as, as they're looking to deliver learning in new and more effective ways. We do, and, and we have a lot of associations that we've supported and worked with, and I think a lot of associations have common challenges, right? I think that they want to provide a, a networking platform for their members to share best practices, to right. tackle whatever industry challenges. They want to provide a collective mechanism or voice to either do lobbying for some kind of you know congressional output or, or just to have clarity on where they should be focused. Um, I think learning plays a huge role in that. A lot of associations, they have traditionally gone very wide in terms of breadth. They've tried to like figure yeah. out as many possible ways to offer learning, and they haven't done as well on going deep right. on specific topics and really providing what I would consider to be really rich, high-quality learning. And part of that is just they're oftentimes up against just a wide variety of needs from their membership mm-hmm. base. Like different people at different levels and different organizations means sure. an endless amount. And so the, the, the result is trying to tap into existing catalogs of, of courses, mm-hmm. you know, all these exec ed programs that various universities run oftentimes have catalogs of self-paced courses. Different industries might have providers that offer, you know, 30-minute self-paced courses on a range of topics. It tends to be this breadth and this long tail of short courses for various topics. Again, the quality can be quite hit or miss. I think what we're starting to see is associations getting a little more thoughtful about that depth piece and trying to really like just build better courses, sometimes collaboratively or bringing stakeholders together mm-hmm. to build the best course on sexual harassment or, or, or the best course on financial literacy for this particular type of manager. 
And to me, that's really where we are because think about how many distractions we have in our lives, Brian. Like it's endless. And if you're trying to get a a colleague or a manager or somebody in your organization to take a course, they've got their Facebook tab open. They got their Twitter tab open. They're scrolling through their Instagram feed. You gotta, you gotta make that course so interesting that they can actually uh, sit there for 30 minutes and take it. So the stakes are higher than ever. Yeah. Well, and, and you're describing something that I've long observed across a lot of industry landscapes, but it's, it's probably something that, you know, there's a lot of, it's fairly uniform, right? There's what I like to say, the difference between head knowledge, heart knowledge, and then practical application, right? And all Mm -hmm. three, Mm -hmm. is kind of what you're talking about in terms of a lot of times we can, you know, either consciously or even somewhat unconsciously just be consuming a lot of head knowledge, right? Filling our head up with stuff, taking things as we like, you know, here's a course that I can fit in between, you know, my power yoga in the morning and on the way to work on the Metro, what have you. Um, but that doesn't necessarily always translate into you being able to practically use the knowledge that you just consumed for your own benefit or even the benefit of others. So as you're talking through, you know, deeper, richer, whether it's micro learning or really robust uh, delivery of something, what are some of the challenges that you see um, that are playing out in these scenarios where you're, you're trying to deliver learning, but also make sure that, you know, it goes from your head to your heart to somebody feeling, feeling like after they're done, they can go and now do something different, better, more effectively because they've gone through this learning experience. It's such a good question. I, and just to kind of build off, off of what you've just shared and that point I made on attention spans, I, I just think the stakes are really high now for us to get this right. Um, certainly, we know that like passively absorbing content, watching videos is one of the worst ways to actually retain information. Sure. Um, but we're also seeing a trend, Brian, where like a lot of industries, especially with tech, the, the tools and the software platforms we're using are changing all the time. And yeah. so what we're really trying to try and identify is what are what are the kind of soft skills that we can help teach people and how do we help build networks and relationships alongside those skills. And yeah. those you really can't do in the passive singular self-paced courses, the micro learnings. And that's an important consideration. You really do have to be actively invested in your learning with other humans at the same time. I think we're seeing a lot more groups looking at blended learning where they're taking in-person workshops and marrying those with online communities. Yeah. That's certainly a big trend. Um, and I think to get back to your point and just to echo it, this kind of real world application, how do you, how do you build a course so that it is directly relevant? All the assignments and the activities are directly relevant to someone's job and get the manager of the person who's taking the course actively invested in that person's learning. I think that to me is, is one of the bigger challenges we're up against, but it's so critical. Right. Um, and to me, it's really about discipline. We've got, we've got to get our families and our, and our bosses and our colleagues all invested in our learning in ways that support us because the distractions are greater than they've ever been. Sure. Well, in, in real life, isn't being able to take and pass a quiz or a right. test. Right. That's not where we're measured out in terms of what we've accumulated and what we can regurgitate effectively. Um, so I think, I mean, you just, yeah, you really hit the the nail on the head there. And I want to step back to something that you talked about, and this is probably semi controversial, probably not probably definitely is in terms of, you know, the educational experience, what what we would call a traditional, 
American education experience where you, you know, you navigate through what we did, right? High school, matriculate to college, and then some, depending on what your aspirations may be, you know, post-college and what, whatnot. Um, the cost-benefit analysis that I think people are all now really going through is, is somewhat considerable because the barrier, I mean, you know, we, we, we talk about, uh, you know, in my industry and in financial industry, the massive burden that student loan debt is now playing uh, on, you know, how it's impacting families and their ability to really do what they're trying to do financially for generations. Um, do you, how do you see, you know, A, the educational experience in traditional, you know, schooling scholastically, and also the landscape changing in what you're doing? I mean, you know, cutting edge, delivering things and through different means. And are you seeing some educational institutions embracing that change to try to bring down their costs? Or like you mentioned, I'm sure there are others that, you know, can hold firm because people are still paying it. I don't know. What does that look like though? So it's one of my favorite topics, Brian, and, and, uh, (laughs) very, very passionate about student debt and and the, and the cost of higher ed in the United States and have, have a number of thoughts and, but just maybe to start at the at, at the at the beginning here, I was at an event maybe last year at the World Bank, and I was speaking, and I asked the audience to sort of I asked them, how many of you here think that by 2040, the majority of high schoolers in the United States will be learning um, the majority of their time online in some way? And hmm. I was amazed. About 70% of the audience shot their hands up, and I think I think we are part of a moment, a wave here that the digital piece of learning, whether it's fully online programs, virtual universities, um, are, are trending towards becoming a greater part of our lives. Sure. Question. Now that should, in theory, drive down costs of delivery. The problem is it hasn't. And right. if you look at how universities have uh, embraced online learning, it is, it is very disturbing. They... Uh, basically rewrote legislation in um, under the Obama administration, in fact, to be able to allow third-party providers to essentially work with universities to build online programs mm-hmm. so long as they uh, you know, do the recruiting and do the co- counseling and sort of provide a full spectrum of services alongside the degree program. Great for universities because then they make uh, money just by sort of outsourcing the majority of the work letting this company le- leverage their brand. But what it means is that the cost of online and the cost of in-person continue to climb at these absurd right, rates. Right. There is no reason why an online program at American University should cost $70,000, $80,000 a year. That's nuts. It doesn't make sense to me. Sure. And I think it's irresponsible. Look, these, these online programs are, should be a, the, the entry point to democratizing the cost and the access piece. Um, I don't see it changing, and I don't see it changing in the short term. I think in the medium term, there's. I, I, I would have thought we would have already been there, but amazingly, people are still paying these costs. I think a lot of it comes down to hiring managers, right? The, the uh, hiring managers in organizations want to see their journey reflected in the people they hire. That's a really interesting And until that changes, I'm not convinced that we're going to make much headway on requiring that all of these industries require certain types of master's degrees, right? You've got to have gone to an Ivy League school in order to get this job. Yeah. Oh, we got another person from MIT. Great. Um, again, I'm very cynical about this, but I will say that people who are, are starting their journeys and making decisions have so many more options available to them than they've sure. ever had. 
especially in tech, fewer people are going for master's degrees. They're finding creative ways to supplement their learning through boot camps and apprenticeships. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more learning on the job. There's an amazing range of like alternative fellowship programs that give you great job experience without necessarily forcing you into debt. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of these as the cost continues to climb. Right. Um, and I'm, and I'm hopeful about that. Well, that's so, and you just mentioned something that was interesting as, as I was coming over here, we were talking about, uh, one of the things that you mentioned, right? The, you know, probably one of the older or maybe even the oldest forms of learning used to be apprenticeship, right? Mm -hmm. That concept of, you know, you have a senior master and then you have these juniors and you are hands-on taught whether it's, you know, and, and, you know, I think, in today's economy, people think of apprenticeships as exclusively blue collar, but I don't think that that's applicable at all. I think that that's maybe a, a, a you know a misnomer. I mean, anybody can apprentice in any kind of you know job industry, et cetera. I mean, there's there's you know uh, one of my one of my early teachers as we started to build our practice told me he said you know learn from the best until you become the best, and that's kind of that model, and it has broad. Mm -hmm application, but I think that that's something that you were, you were talking about. So how is that, you know, I, I agree with you. I hope that that type of a trend continues. I've seen, you know, in the financial industry, it was, uh, there was a period where, where, you know, I was involved in some form of hiring or trying to train new folks coming into the industry. And one of the things that I started to find very quickly is that I was reticent to hire somebody who actually had a degree in business or finance because those people to to me and to what you know the the firm that we were working for at the time actually had too much head knowledge that got in their way whereas other people that didn't come with those kind of degrees were kind of you know blank canvases willing to learn and and receive um so it's just it's interesting how you know just very practically that you know the the return to apprenticeship or maybe the rise of it in in technology and hybrid learning is, is, is a growing area. Are you seeing that in nonprofits and some of the association relationships that they're trying to drive that experience more? Growing trends, for sure. And uh, I, I think you know, apprenticeship is more than just mentorship, right? It's really thinking about the practical applications. It's more common in trade industries. Yep. Uh, but I think what we're finding is that people that are going to trade schools, there's generally a stigma around trade schools in this country that's not... Uh, true of other countries. Yeah. And uh, I think we're finding more and more that people that are doing the trade school route are not going into debt, are finding jobs, are, are getting paid uh, uh, great wages. It's really it's really a lot of the white collar jobs where there, there just aren't as many jobs as uh, the university likes to let you think there Absolutely. are out there for you. And so what the journey that I find the saddest is the universities and the recruiters, they talk young kids into this is the path you need to take because this is what your parents did or this is what your hiring manager will have done they do it but the stakes are totally different the debt Absolutely. is out of control and then there just aren't that many jobs waiting for them at the other end and so they've spent their 150 200k they get their 50k a year job and it's nuts I think just to just to build one last point on that is like the MBA is also struggling to define its value proposition yeah. and this is your world but you know we look at programs like Alt MBA which is Seth Godin's uh, effort it's a four week online program highly collaborative portfolio based and you come out of there with real world projects that you've done and a community of people who are willing to support you in your journey 
it's really hard to say that the $5,000 you spend on that um, is is like orders of magnitude worse than the 200K you spend on business school. Completely agree. Uh, and so, again, I think more and more people are waking up to this, but um, the real tragedy for me is that universities didn't leverage their brands to provide low-cost education online to, to, to the communities they serve. They outsourced it, and they took the money. And I think we're just really stuck in this just tragic paradigm as a result. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, I I guess as we see the financial part, you know, as I work with clients regularly in the, you know, the different version of what we call the the sandwich generation, which used to mean you'd have your parents and your kids living in the same house with you. Well, now we also talk about it in terms of saving for college for your kids, as well as paying off your own student loans, right? That's the... We have the same generation, the first time in our history, that has this massive uh, dynamic of paying down debt while potentially accumulating new debt for their kids. It's, I mean, it's ludicrous, right? The, the economics behind how, mm-hmm. how we are hindering our society in many respects from being more successful than they, they could be because you know they're dealing with the economic impact of paying for an education that maybe didn't have the ROI that it was, you know, yeah. they were led to believe. I mean, it's no, you're crazy. right, it, it, Brian. It, the kids that are born today in 2020, uh, if you estimate seven percent increase in tuition over the next 18 years, college, a four-year degree, will cost them around four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, if the folks that are the parents are also trying to save for their own retirements and playing catch-up from the financial crisis, that is a perfectly untenable mess. I don't see how we square that. And so something's got to give. I think, I mean, again, a lot of families are doing the community college for two or three years and then transferring. I mentioned the trade school uh, routes, Um, more and more kind of online alternatives cropping up. I also just don't think that the second and third tier schools, whether they're undergrad or graduate, are going to survive either because I think the value proposition just won't make sense to pay, all right, maybe 20% less than the Ivy League schools, but for a degree that doesn't carry the brand, I don't know. I don't don't see it. Uh, And so that's another kind of fascinating output that this tuition rise goes. But for the Ivy League schools and that sort of upper echelon, they have nothing stopping them, right? They're just, they're going to ride this wave as far as they can take it. They're sure. going to build out their fancy buildings and their and their administrations. I've yet to have somebody from these worlds kind of articulate clearly what the money's going for or why they need it. And then on top of that, they're also asking for lots and lots of money from the, from the alumni. And so to me, this is just nuts. Yeah. I mean, and their endowments alone could fund, yeah. you know, them for... Yeah. Yeah. An exponential period of time. Yeah. It's, it is pretty crazy. Um, I want to look at the financial industry. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, I spend a lot of time not just doing it professionally, but also working in, with the associations uh, that represent the financial industry. And so learning is, is routinely this conversation that we're having on a variety of levels. How do you see um, ways for someone in the financial industry to uh, adopt, utilize, and direct technology to equip somebody that's coming into an industry that mm. um, I, I would safely say traditionally the the practice of it hasn't been very effectively taught in traditional schools and, and colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, what things do you think could really be beneficial to, to you know give somebody a leg up as they're coming into something yeah. that they might be excited about? 
Well, this might be an interesting point to mention that it, that is changing a little bit. So there's a company here in D.C. actually, EverFi, that got its start by providing financial literacy education to its uh, mostly its customers, right? And so there's uh, some kind of legislation which is written into um, uh, some kind of federal legislation which basically stipulates that community banks and large banks have to give back a certain percentage of their yep. of their revenue or their profit or whatever to the community. And so whatever I did was very clever. They said, hey, uh, banks, why don't you provide financial literacy education to your customers in the form of online learning? And we'll build out a standard curriculum, and you can license it from us, and we'll customize it for your community and your user mm-hmm. base. Yeah. And that just took off. That was a very clever uh, business that's still serving them well. And they started to roll that out to high schools. And so I think, whereas you and I, we went to high school, never had this type of training, yep. just basic consumer spending habits, um, financial literacy in general, just, just lack, lacking. Um, I think we're starting to see some changes on that front. Now, if you look at the financial sector more broadly, I think what we see is a lot of these banks, uh, larger banks are really worried about the, uh, the horizon, right? They are moving more towards automation, but they've got these just massive um, uh, you know, pay- payrolls with lots and lots of oh, humans, yeah. and so, but they've got to retain a lot of talent. And so training and learning becomes a way to upskill the people you have towards the jobs of the future. Yeah. But most of them are still stuck, as we talked about at the beginning, in this model of use training and learning to make sure that sexual harassment is covered, or use training and learning to make sure people know how to submit their receipts. Yeah, the CYA approach. Yeah. Yeah. It's all compliance-based. And so I think what we're starting to see now is, is definitely a terror that like the future is coming and automation is real and half of all jobs will no longer be real in mm-hmm. 20 years, married with, oh my God, we have a lot of people that are still going to be, are young enough that 20 years they're still going to be potentially in the sector, um, we don't want to lose them to competition, right? We don't want them to, to mm-hmm. leave and turnover is rampant in every industry. Uh, so the only way to square that is to actually invest in their learning uh, as much as possible. Yeah. And so I think we are seeing some really phenomenal examples uh, of training and learning in, in banks. I had a great chat with the woman who runs the corporate learning for Citibank hmm. uh, last week, and she came from the nonprofit sector. and. So, I mean, again, the training and learning challenges at that scale are, are massive. Yeah. But, um, but, so the, but so they're both trying to, to, to manage how their consumers, their clients, spend better, and they're trying to manage their own internal uh, training and growth needs. And I think those two fronts are actually um, are, are, are a challenge to kind of square at the same time. Yeah. No, and, and those are some outstanding points. Uh, you know, I, I also... Um, it gets me excited to see the ways that, uh, you know, we're trying to take an industry forward to be, um, you know, we talked about soft skills, right? You know, so the head knowledge component is great, but, you know, being the smartest person in the room doesn't mean that you can communicate that to your, to your client or somebody you're trying to help make these financial decisions. Um, and so, you know, it's been really neat seeing how, you know, uh, like my professional association, NAFA's trying to marry their certification programs with very, very practical, you know, almost behavioral economic learning experiences for members. So that way they can take that head knowledge and be able to actually communicate it and, you know, non-financial ease terms, right? Because not everybody speaks financial ease. And so that's, um, you know, financial literacy is a huge uh, thing. I think the other thing that excites me, and you've probably seen this too, is, is, 
you know, I've, I've long been troubled by the fact that it feels like, and in many practical realities, a lot of the financial industries only serves the wealthiest consumers. Um, it's just the way the economics of the industry has always been. And yet I think technology is not just disrupting that to bring financial services more directly to, you know, a broader part of the consuming public. But I also think that financial literacy component is equipping more people across the wealth spectrum to be more engaged, to be more able to maybe work with a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty exciting. How, how have you seen from the financial literacy component, have you seen anything that um, you can point to statistically or just maybe, um, you know, anecdotally that's, that's really showing that this is starting to see, you know, we're starting to see improvements that, mm-hmm. you know, are bearing fruit? It's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that because uh, I don't do a, a lot of financial literacy training in this country. I think we're seeing certain trends take shape. I think it's interesting you mentioned that because a lot of our work looks at the phenomenon of mobile banking internationally. And, sure. and here we're working with poorest of the poor people around the world, and, and most of that banking is done on cell phones. And so we've done courses uh, in Kenya, for instance, where uh, a program called M-Pesa has has swept across the the uh, the country and something like 60 70% of the GDP flows through this mobile banking program wow. so far, started by Safaricom the mobile telecom company but if you think about it they had a, a, a huge financial literacy challenge because they were working with populations that not only didn't know much about banking uh, you know, hiding stuff under the mattress uh, stereotypes, but also weren't actually literate. And so they had to develop <laughs> uh, a whole way through technology to educate their consumers around, um, you know, if they couldn't read, they were doing it on audio messages and menus, yeah, like wow. these types of strategies, but wildly successful. And uh, and I think in, in many ways, the U.S. has a lot to learn from other countries like this because we have not done as good a job as we as we could, like educating people around the risks of of taking bad loans and and, and so forth. And so, and what's also neat about programs like M-Pesa is they're using cell phone data to actually populate credit scores for people. Wow. And if you think about our experience going to a bank, we have all this incredible paper trail of all the things we've ever done financially. We have all these credit scores and so forth. In these contexts, we're talking about people who have none of that. Yeah. But depending on how they call, who they call, what their cell phone bill is, in minutes they can get a credit score. So, to me, innovation is happening in other countries that we can learn from, like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so one of the challenges our our company does is trying to bring a lot of those innovations and and, and try and think about the U.S. context and, and where are we where are our blind spots? Wow. Yeah. Last thought-provoking question: If if you were to say uh, one or two things that are consistent barriers that you see, particularly across maybe mm-hmm. the association or nonprofit landscape, when it comes to trying to examine e-learning and and better leverage technology for learning purposes, what barriers would you want people to be aware of that maybe they're not? Well, I, th- I think the big one, which echoes a lot of what we've said here already, is just that I think there's a hesitance to invest well in mm. this training and learning piece because it feels like an afterthought but it's one of those things that if you don't do it well up front and invest you have major consequences in the long run sure. um, and the more we can shift that mindset from being compliance driven to i think this whole bucket of upskilling right you need to retain talent to compete yeah. on the horizon of your organization's uh, future 
um, the better off I think these nonprofits that do that will be. And then I think for associations, it's really about trying to think not just in terms of breadth, like when we think of membership offerings, usually mm -hmm. we want to pack as many things into that as we can, um, but also about depth. And you mentioned certifications earlier. I think those are a fantastic way, industry certifications, to really get at depth. And if you can marry a really practical, robust certification program with some ability to ensure that it is recognized across the membership or sure. across the industry, then uh, that's really exciting. And I, I'm seeing more and more associations doing this. And it's a marketing challenge, right? You got to get out there and you got to build uh, like the, the reliability and the veracity of your program, your certificate, so that it means something. Yeah. Universities have had hundreds of years to tell us yeah. that a Harvard degree means something. Yeah. Certifications haven't had that luxury. But I think to me, that's, that's a really exciting space. Awesome. Any final shout outs you want to make? No, Brian, I'm just, I'm just glad to be back and, uh, and chatting with you, man. And I'm, I'm super excited to uh, carry the conversation if folks have questions uh, to, um, to, to field them and, and see where, where else you all are thinking. Awesome. So how can people follow you or get a hold of you? So uh, as, you, as you know, I'm a big LinkedIn man. Yes, I, I love all things LinkedIn. And so uh, follow me, Nick Martin, Tech Change on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. And I, I post about this kinds of stuff we've been talking about today, but all kinds of kind of management, career tips as well. And uh, my posts are not one directional. They're very much conversations. Yes, so are. anybody that, that uh, follows me knows that I care just as much about what you say than what I have in my mind. So... Um, looking forward to, to carrying the conversation on LinkedIn as well. Thanks, my friend. All right. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us online at thehaneycompany.com or on Twitter at The Haney Company. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA CIPIC.